This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is Kenneth Frazier, first African-American CEO of a major pharmaceutical company. The company is Merck. And during his tenure, Ken Frazier has not only achieved great success with breakthrough drugs, but he's also changed in a very profound way the culture of the company. Merck has always had a good culture, but Ken Frazier has put soul into it. I think you'll be fascinated both by what he's done with this major company and his own life story. As a child, he was enormously influenced by a man named Thurgood Marshall. Marshall later went on to the Supreme Court, but Marshall achieved fame as a lawyer, arguing against successfully a hideous Supreme Court decision of 1896 called Plessy versus Ferguson, which allowed segregation and Jim Crow racism in the South and throughout the country. Marshall went before the Supreme Court in 1953-54 in a case called Brown versus the Kansas Board of Education and argued successfully against that hideous case. Supreme Court unanimously overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. That fight by Marshall opened the door for Ken Frazier to go to good schools in Philadelphia and eventually to attend the Harvard Law School. I interviewed Ken Frazier at the Forbes Healthcare Summit in December. We awarded him our first ever Lifetime Achievement Award for healthcare. Everyone in the audience knew he richly deserved this award. In a moment, you'll hear my conversation, but first, what's ahead? The headlines will be dominated by impeachment, which ultimately will go nowhere. But we have the first contest this week on Monday night, the Iowa caucuses. Who's going to come out ahead? Who's going to be wounded? And we have economic news coming. How well will the economy continue to do? It did well in 2019, but not as well in 2018. The ISM manufacturing report is coming out, and that gives an indication of how manufacturing is doing. It's a survey of purchasing managers, and manufacturing weakened in 2019. Is it now going to start to come back again? So that report will be critically important. Also in the coming week, we'll get the weekly reports on oil and gas inventories. Oil has taken a severe hit because of the virus coming out of China, which is really destroying tourism and business travel. Oil inventories are piling up. This report will take on more importance than it has in years. And now, I hope you'll enjoy and be inspired by my conversation with the extraordinary man heading up Merck, Ken Frazier. Wow, it's bright up here. It's always bright when you're with Steve Forbes. It's like oh, you, you, you took my more. line away. I was going to say that about you. And I've been in politics. I'm used to it. But uh, we're delighted to uh, have uh, Ken here tonight uh, to uh, receive the first uh, Forbes Lifetime Achievement Award for Healthcare. And uh, his life story would have delighted Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Ken grew up in poverty in northern Philadelphia. His mother died when he was only 12 years old. He and his siblings were raised by their father, who instilled in them the crucial importance of education, hard work, and pursuit of excellence. And Ken has made the point that if his father had the opportunities that so many people have now today, he would have been a CEO. He read two newspapers a day. He read all your textbooks in high school and college and a remarkable man. And so Ken went to high school, obviously, graduated at the age of 16, 
went to Penn State, graduated there, and then went to Harvard Law. At college, you had an entrepreneurial bent. Legend has it that you raised tadpoles and newts and then sold them to local stores. That's true. So uh, you do what you have to. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, after Harvard Law, he went to work for an esteemed law firm in Philadelphia, and he chose the firm not because of prestige, but because of the opportunity to do pro bono work, including a stint you did in South Africa, yes. teaching law students there after apartheid. Before apartheid. Before apartheid. It was over. And overcoming not just the lack of proper law school facilities, but also what you call the confidence factor. Right. That people have been always told, you're never going to go anywhere, don't bother because you're not going to get anywhere and overcoming that, as well as teaching law. And then he took on a case of an inmate on death row, a fellow named James Willie Bo Cochran. He was sentenced to death, and Ken then took on the case, got a new trial, and won acquittal. And what we see here is an aspect of leadership. When this case was first brought to you, you thought, I'm so busy, got other things, and two colleagues of you persuaded you. Yes. And the ability to listen to advice and be persuaded, very, very important. So as a lawyer, he, among clients, he worked with, uh, did some work for Merck, was persuaded to come on board, and ultimately became CEO. So Ken has led the company to take on some of the world's most critical healthcare challenges. He has spearheaded a science-led, research-intensive approach to innovation. He has overseen a period of strong growth, both financially and scientifically, as Merck cancer's, cancer's key cancer medicine, K-Truda, provides new hope to a generation of patients and their families. And he set as an example as a CEO, and indeed for all leaders, keeping a sense of patient-centered purpose front and center. Uh, Peter Drucker, the late great management guru whose books are still read in some business schools today, made the point that every organization should always ask itself, what is your purpose? What is your mission? What is it you're trying to do? So Ken, thank you so much for being with us today. Steve, thank you for that wonderful preview of my obituary. <laughs> <laughs> I, now I, I know what they're going to say. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, maybe in 50 years with the drugs that are coming from Merck, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to get to that occasion. Okay. But uh, uh, go walk us through first. Um, going from, uh, first, what, what attracted you to law? Okay. Uh, what 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 made you? You had obviously immense talents. You were getting great education. What drew you to the law, which wouldn't strike a lot of people as very exciting, but you saw a higher purpose. Yeah. So thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. Uh, although I was raised in the inner city of Philadelphia, I was raised at an interesting time in our society, where uh, the social engineers said, you know, talented children should be put on buses and taken to places where they could get a rigorous education. And so my younger sister and I, by accident of birth, were bused across Philadelphia to the best schools in Philadelphia. And that's the first point. As I went to undergraduate school uh, with the determination to be a chemist. And that was my major for my first year, year and a half. But there was always something gnawing at me. And that is that I've always looked up to lawyers. You know, I grew up during the period of the civil rights movement in the United States, and often when it's portrayed, uh, the, the biggest exemplar of that is, is Dr. King, 
who led the Montgomery bus uh, boycott and subsequent issues. But way before that, there were a hardy band of very brave lawyers led by Thurgood Marshall in the South who actually laid the groundwork for all that work in Brown versus Board of Education, which was the seminal 1954 decision of the Supreme Court the year I was born, uh, was the case that really separate but equal was no longer constitutional. And so I grew up looking at those lawyers as heroes because of their bravery and the fact that they could change society in a nonviolent way. By the way, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education uh, was a case overturning what they called Jim Crow, legalized segregation, which came from a bad, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in history, along with Dred Scott Plessy versus Ferguson, Ferguson right. in 1896, which allowed, legalized, what Dr. King and others fought against. But Thurgood Marshall and others realized you've got to fight it, but you also have to demolish the legal underpinnings of it so people yes. couldn't say, oh, well, it's the law, it's right. the rule. You had to demolish that to begin to really change people's exactly. hearts and minds. Exactly. And uh, so uh, you're uh, doing great work as, as a lawyer, doing pro bono work, and then Merck wants you to come aboard. What made you decide to take the leap? So the honest answer to that question is uh, my wife. And uh, my wife was a legal headhunter. And when uh, this legendary CEO of Merck, uh, Dr. Roy Vagelos, called me uh, in, in 1992 and suggested that I might want to leave the law firm and come into Merck, I remember saying to her, honey, I'm going to go and I'm going to humor Dr. Vagelos, but I'm really going to stay here in Philadelphia. I love the practice of law. And she usually didn't be, she wasn't usually uh, a dictator at, at that early stage of our marriage. And <laughs> so what she said very nicely is, sweetheart, I, I don't want to tell you your business, but there's no comparison between a law firm and what Merck has to offer. And so I listened to her and I decided to try it out and it's been the best thing I've ever done. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, with law, as you did in that uh, death case, death penalty case, is one case at a time. Right. I guess she's made the case to you that at Merck, if a drug works, you're going to affect millions of people at a time. Absolutely. Well, certainly when I first sat down and talked to Dr. Vagelos, he made that point. You know, so we spent 10 years on that one death row case to save one life. And, you know, at Merck, what we can do, let's just take a more recent example of what we've been doing with an Ebola vaccine in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. We can save thousands of lives. Uh, so... I think the opportunity at Merck was great, but what really attracted me to Merck was where you started, that really strong sense of purpose. When I began to talk to people inside the company, I realized that the ethos of pro bono was very much like the ethos of Merck, right? So the idea of preserving, extending human life and trying to be equitable and dealing with health disparities is a major part of what Merck is about in addition to scientific excellence. Again, having that uh, higher purpose. Uh, before we get to some of the things you've done at Merck, particularly in the area of R&D at a time when that was under a cloud in, in, in the industry, uh, you were in the midst of the, the crisis with the Vioxx, an arthritic drug designed to be less harmful to the stomach, pain reliever better than aspirin, ibuprofen, but it had side effects, heart attacks, strokes, and you and two others made the decision you had to yank the drug. And by the way, hopefully technology is coming along where in the future with a drug like that, you'll be able to determine 
individually. Exactly. It worked for you, but not for me. Right. But in this case, if there are enough where it didn't work, you had to yank it. And of course, the trial bar just licked their chops like flies to a carcass and just descended. Experts said it would take $50 billion to settle these cases. And you, uh, most companies have said, okay, we'll, we'll find a way to do it, just settle them all. And you made the point, no. We're gonna fight every case, take them one by one, judge them by their merits, and not roll over. And you fought this. Tell us the moral reason you fought it, both in terms of the ethos of Merck and just simple justice that if you are done a wrong, fine, but if you're just part of a sweep just to extract money, you weren't gonna do it, which was very rare. Still yeah. isn't companies today. So a couple of points I would make. First of all, you know, a lot of people look at the whole Vioxx situation as a legal strategy. If you were inside Merck, the fundamental allegation in that litigation, which was that this company knowingly and intentionally put patient health at risk was something we sure, could not Profits accept. before people see. Exactly. We, so this litigation, the defense of the litigation, was about vindicating the company's values. And so from our perspective, uh, knowing that we had brought this upon ourselves by voluntarily withdrawing the drug when we first saw what we thought was pretty good evidence that there was a disparity in terms of the number of heart attacks on the drug, we thought that was the right thing to do in withdrawing it. And then we said, we're not going to let a group of, I use the word, rapacious lawyers take the company under uh, because we did the right thing in our estimation. Cultures, parasites, whatever word you want to use. Yes. So, so we decided that it was important for us to not let the word Vioxx become, in effect, a verbal shorthand for corporate greed and corporate wrongdoing. I'll pick one. We didn't want it to be the equivalent of Enron. We didn't want it to be that. And so we decided to fight the cases and, and we tried something like 19 of them. And uh, we lost the first one pretty badly. But towards the end, I think we won something like eight of the last 10 cases because we could convince juries that the company was trying to do the right thing, that we were imperfect, that if you took a drug like that and put it in a large enough population for a long enough period of time, you were bound to learn some things about it that you didn't know in the clinical trials. And, you know, frankly, I'm a big believer in the jury system. And the juries understood that there was no perfect system for developing drugs. And by and large, they sided with us, which is why the settlement number was a tenth of what people expected it to be. Yeah, for $4.85 instead of 50 It's really, it's just still real money, by the way. Yes, but <laughs> could, could have been more real money. Right. One of the things that uh, made you effective in, in the courtroom and this devising the strategy was, I think you said, I saw my father in that jury box. How would I convince him? He's right. not, uh, in, in, he's not an expert in pharmaceuticals. How do I convince him right. the rightness of our case? Yeah. So I think that was, as I used to try cases for a living, and I always thought it was a real, real benefit for me that my father, who was born in the South in the year 1900, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was actually born into slavery. Uh, so I only have one generation between me and slavery. But my dad was born in 1900 in South Carolina. He had only three years of what passed for an education for a black child at the turn of the 20th century in South Carolina, but he was a brilliant man. And so I understood that there was a difference between the level of formal education that people have and their ability to understand issues if you talk to them in ways that they could understand. 
And frankly, that's what our democracy is about. Our democracy says the wisdom of large numbers of people is better than the wisdom of even very intelligent small groups of people. And that's what the jury system says. If we put 12 people in a room that come from disparate places in our society and we force them to wrestle with the evidence that they heard and come to a single version of the truth, that that single version of the truth is likely to be better than any expert's version of the truth. And again, hammering home with your, the brilliant lawyers you had, explain it in a way that people can understand. That's exactly right. In exactly the right. biographies of Lincoln, there are a wonderful passage where at night he would travel the circuit. Yes. And uh, at night when others were sleeping, he'd be by the window side talking to himself, how do I make it Convey so it. that it's understandable to people, which made him so effective when he became president. He'd been exactly. dealing with make, making the case exactly. and bringing people along. You said uh, something very interesting. I think you've uh, already answered part of it, but you once said companies do have souls. Mm -hmm. Explain that, which goes against the whole attack today against uh, companies. No, properly run, they have a soul. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that Corporations have become the whipping boy for people. They've created tremendous wealth around the world. If you look at how many people have risen over the past few decades from dire poverty globally, a lot of it is because of private enterprise. It's because of capitalism. It's the vehicle through which that happens generally is corporations. But what I meant by saying a company has the soul is that the company is made up of a group of flesh and blood people. And those people have a sense of purpose. At Merck, people get up every day in the morning with the desire to alleviate human suffering, and that's what motivates people. Uh, I talked about our Ebola vaccine, which we're very proud of. The people who worked on the Ebola vaccine did not uh, do that because we assigned them full time to that. These were, were people, our researchers, our manufacturing people, our chemical engineers. They said, we want to do this on top of what we're doing every day because we see an opportunity to, again, prevent disease, alleviate human suffering. So that ethos, that sense of purpose is what I mean by soul. And you'll see that there have been companies that have drifted away from that. And those are the companies that have really gotten into trouble, either legally or- About what Drucker said. Well, that's, that's exactly right. right. They've lost purpose. their purpose in the world. Um, so you become a head of Merck and a company that had a tradition of a great pipeline of great new drugs, but it hit a dry spell and yeah. the industry was under pressure. Uh, why are you spending so much on R&D? Cut it back. Let's let startups develop the drug, and if it looks good, you buy the company out and let them do the uh, scut work. Right. But you uh, said no. You were gonna you were gonna go in the opposite direction. Leadership. How how did you make that decision? It sounds easy to say. Yeah. But when the whole pressure is to do the opposite, yeah. how, how do you resist that and convince people to ultimately go along with you? So let me start by saying I have been extremely fortunate to be surrounded by scientific giants at Merck. You know, my first exposure to Merck when I was a very young lawyer, I worked very closely with a, a person whose name is Dr. Maurice Hilleman, who invented 40 childhood vaccines. His obituary was on the front page of the New York Times. It said he'd saved the lives of more people than any scientist who lived in the 20th century. And so if you get to know those people, and then I worked for Dr. Roy Vagelos. My first job when I came into inside Merck was not as a lawyer, I mean, I was a lawyer for a year, but then he brought me and made me his chief of communications. And it was his last two years, his valedictory two years were my first two years. And so I had to put into words his conception of the soul of Merck. And I have to say, on my best day today at the company, I'm simply rechanneling what I learned. He would say, for example, 
you know, there are lots of KPIs, there are lots of uh, uh, objectives inside a company, lots of ways of keeping track of business, but ultimately there's only two metrics that matter when you're the CEO of Merck. One is how many people do you help, and two is how much help do you give those people. And if you maximize those two metrics as the CEO, all the other metrics will take their place. So in some ways I would say I was maybe brainwashed to think about the company's higher purpose in a different way. So when I became CEO, it was at an interesting time in the, in the 2010 era, in the 2009-2010 era, the industry had hit a long uh, dry spell. Uh, and Wall Street was saying there was a provocative piece put out, I think it was by Morgan Stanley, saying create shareholder value by cutting research. And that had become what a lot of companies believed in. I think that fundamental research matters fundamentally. And I think in a company like Merck, you can only maintain the company's purpose if you stick with it during bad times. And so for us, it was just a question of saying, we're not going to do what's going to keep some investors happy in the short run by giving up what the company has always stood for for 125 years. One of the things you uh, got rid of is earnings guidance, this idea you got to play quarter by quarter. Well, long-term earnings guidance, yeah. right. And uh, uh, make the point that the importance of, it's not a pun, patient capital. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, one of the things when I became CEO, we had put in place five years of long-term EPS guidance, of which only two years had elapsed. And when I became CEO, we were still on a track where we could achieve that long-term earnings guidance, but at a very high cost. It would require rather immediate and indiscriminate cuts in R&D. And so I made the decision 25 days into the job to withdraw the guidance, which is not something that was a lot of fun because Wall Street didn't, wasn't, didn't treat that very kindly. Uh, uh, but I think looking back at that, to your point about patient capital, the shareholder base did turn over very quickly. It, it didn't feel good at the time because the stock value plummeted. But what happened was people who believed in R&D bought the stock. And people who didn't believe in it sold the stock and went on elsewhere. And, and actually, they gave us the room and the time to rebuild our scientific enterprise to the point where now we're making some very significant contributions. Which also gets uh, to a point that some CEOs overlook is that the importance of establishing the rules of the game. Right. If you make the point, this is how we're going to be guided, you'll get the kind of investors who will go along with that. I think that's right. I think that's right. And uh, your big drug, the one that everyone talks about today, which immunotherapy, was amazing. Several, it was not that many years ago. People had doubts about yeah. it. And uh, this drug came to you through a merger. And even inside your company, there was skepticism. Walk us through how, how, how that evolved. So this drug, Keytruda, which stimulates the body's immune system to fight tumors, it's obviously different from Now radio. the conventional wisdom, but uh, right. years it's, ago it was seen as what? Yeah, right. The idea that you could cause the body's immune system to fight cancer, was it seemed far-fetched. And of course, people were treated with chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Um, but for 50 years, people had been looking at this. As you know, the Nobel Prize was given to Jim Allison for this last year. The fact of the matter is, when we bought this company, Organon, which was a part of Sharing Plow, we weren't smart enough to know 
that there was a drug of this value there. But the one thing I can say with truth about the acquisition was that we thought really good science was happening at Organon. And so the acquisition was a lot of people who are really smart people have been working very hard on certain issues for a long period of time. And we thought we were getting optionality on all that long period of work. And it turns out that it's going to be one of the most important drugs ever introduced into clinical practice, certainly one of the you know, broadest set of indications ever. We weren't smart enough to know that that drug was there, uh, but we, we did bring in our new head of research, Roger Perlmutter, who uh, just happens to be an immunologist by training, who spent a long time at Amgen developing oncology drugs. And as soon as he came in the door and surveyed what was there, he said, oh, this is amazing. This is a drug that we can really make something out of and help a lot of people, and that's what we've been fortunate enough to do. And uh, talk about the, you know, the phrase, the gift that keeps on giving. This drug keeps on giving. Uh, you've mentioned you have over 1,000 clinical trials yes, and finding more and more tumors that it can attack. And... It's unprecedented. Uh, it's, you know, we have 20 indications now. We're moving in earlier and earlier lines of therapy. We're expanding to new tumor types. It is the first broad-spectrum anti-neoplastic agent introduced into clinical practice. And so it's up to us to make sure that we find the resources to get this drug to as many people as we can because of the importance of it to people every day. Not getting into the weeds of it, but a decision was made that looked like short-term might restrict the use of the drug, but laid the foundation for its wider use. Yes. And that is, uh, explain biomarkers and, yeah. and, and the choices. You, you so Andrew was just talking about the need to make sure that we get value out of drugs and that we use the right drug at the right time for the right <coughs> patient. And so when we were studying the drug initially, a lot of people on Wall Street criticized our use of a biomarker or a test to actually help stratify patients and predict which patients would respond to the medicine and not. The idea on the part of some people is, why would you want to restrict the number of people who are eligible for your drug? And I'll borrow something that I think Andrew was alluding to. If the drug doesn't work, it really doesn't have any value for that patient. And therefore, it doesn't have any value for the system. So what we wanted to be able to do when we discovered, that when we started working on this drug, we wanted to understand how the drug worked fundamentally as monotherapy and for which patients it would work. And in the early days, that restricted our use of the drug. But as we began to understand the drug better, it helped us understand what were the better agents to combine it with. And I think in the long run, it turns out that taking the scientific approach was the right approach in developing this drug. At the beginning, as you say, it looked restrictive, but it opened up, a, ended up a wide, wide vista. Yes. Um, drug pricing, we won't get in the, it's a rather complicated subject, but uh, one of the things that uh, people focus on is costs. Just quickly give us lives saved. Let, let, let's get to the bottom line. Well, you know, let me take a step back and, and talk about this in a broader perspective because I think that those of us who are in the business of inventing composition of matter, chemicals and biologics that are intended to work in the body to save and extend lives, um, I think people don't understand, first of all, how hard that is to get that done. We fail more than 90% of the time. If you go back to the year 1900 in the United States, a child born in the year 1900 could expect to live 50 years on average. Now, a child born at the end of the 20th century could expect to live to be almost 80. So what happened? 
So obviously sanitation, clean water helped. Nutrition helped. Education helped. But a lot of the expansion in life expectancy after the 50s had to do with childhood vaccines. It had to do with antibiotics. It had to do with statins, antihypertensives, HIV drugs, cancer drugs. And so if you just look at Merck, Merck has been a pioneer in every one of those fields. And I was at the company, fortunate, when we developed a drug, indinavir, crixivan for HIV. I remember what it was like when we first gave that drug to people in hospice and people who were dying were able to sit up, take nourishment, get stronger. It's a miracle when you see what these medicines can do. Sounds like the miracle with, uh, in the early 20s with uh, insulin and diabetes. Yeah, absolutely. Famous time and that 50 cases and they brought the insulin in. And, or penicillin. Like, and right. As they gave it, going down the line of these patients, they started to recover. Exactly. You could see it before your eyes. There's no question that the drug worked when you randomized people. Some people got the drug, some people got the placebo. You could see that the drug worked. We're seeing the same thing now with immuno-oncology. All right, you, you, you know, Jimmy Carter had said his goodbyes, and now he gets a drug, he had metastasized to his brain, and, and, and now he's healthy. I mean, he keeps running into issues now because of his age, but, but these drugs can do wonderful things. And coming back to your pricing issue, the fact that they do, can do wonderful things, I agree with some of the things that Andrew said. We have to find a way to develop a system or an approach where we can get the benefit of these drugs over time and pay for them. One of the problems we have as an industry is these drugs are really expensive, but a lot of things are expensive. Houses are expensive. Educations are expensive. But we don't expect somebody to pay completely up front for those things. The way in which we now get drugs reimbursed is somebody who needs Keytruda, and Keytruda costs about $160,000 a year. People don't have that up front, but if we're extending people's lives and we're preventing the cost of people dying from cancer, which is much more expensive than $160,000 a asset year. Amortize. Why right. not do We've got to be months? able to do that, right? Uh, giving back. Uh, briefly give us how moved you were, which I think hit your feelings anyway, with uh, Pope Francis and giving back. Yeah, well, I had the, the opportunity of, about a year and a half ago to spend 35 minutes alone with, with the Pope. Uh, he invited me, and actually, he's a Jesuit priest. He was a chemist before he became the Pope. He trained on the Merck Index, and so he invited me to the Vatican to sit with him and uh, to make sure that I understood, that, as Matthew 25 says, that whatever we do for the least of his, we do unto, unto him. And he wanted us to know that while Merck has a soft heart, there's a lot more we could do for people. And... Uh... Well, you've done uh, with river blindness uh, yes. in Africa, and you've, uh, what, 20,000 Yeah, I would say one patients. of the things I'm most proud of right now is the work that we're doing on maternal mortality. Uh, you know, here in New York City, an African-American woman is four times more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman, and it doesn't matter what her status of education is. Right next door in our home state in New Jersey, we're dead last of the 50 states in terms of racial disparities in birth and, and dying, women dying. These are things that we need to fix in our country. It's great that we've done the human genome and people's genetic codes are helping us decide how to treat them. But the reality of the world is the zip code is more determinative of your health in this country right now than your genetic code. And we have to find ways to deal with these health disparities. And I'm very proud that Merck wants to spend its time, its money, and its talent on those issues. 
I know we've just run out of time, but one of the things you hit is very important, and every leader does, and the importance of people. But explain just quickly how you got Roger Perlmutter to come back, and uh, it's made such a difference. Just as an example of, yeah, people are important, but how do you get the people? So, the right so people? Roger and I worked together at Merck when we were both very young, and then he left to go to Amgen. And when I became CEO, he had just retired from Amgen, so I got on a plane and went out to beautiful Santa Barbara where he lived and was retired and tried to convince him to come back, and I don't know whether it was that he saw the opportunity or whether he felt some level of guilt, but, but he did come back, and it made a huge difference. It's not just him. I have to say, one of the funny things about being a CEO is what I call the narrative fallacy. When your company does well, everybody says, look how good that guy is, right? The reality of the world is the, the two things that make the biggest difference is what is the environment in which your company is functioning at a particular point in time. Warren Buffett said, if you take a great manager and put him in a failing business model, always bet on the failing business model, right? So it helps if you're in the right environment. I come to Merck when immuno-oncology is exploding and we have the lead drug, so the environment was good. But the second thing to your point about Roger, Steve, is it's the performance of other people that make you successful. And so I just want to say that I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by terrific, talented, committed scientists, engineers, and other people inside Merck. And I know it's the narrative fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that shows uh, why you're such an effective leader. And uh, now uh, let's uh, formally give you the award. Ken, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Thank you. As you'll now agree, this was a well-deserved award for an extraordinary man about leadership and moral courage. And now, I hope you'll also learn something from my Reads of the Week. The first one is going to get some of you riled up. It's called The Perverse Panic Over Plastic. It's written by John Tierney, T-I-E-R-N-E-Y. It's on cityjournal.org, city-journal.org. And Tierney makes a powerful case that these wars against disposable plastic bags, straws, and other products are actually doing more harm than good. Read it. And if you want to rile people up at a cocktail party, cite this article. The next one is a Wall Street Journal editorial called A Greek Economic Revival. You can find it on wsj.com. It's about the Eurozone's laggard country, finds itself six months into a remarkable turnaround. Why? Because the government has enacted tax cuts and deregulation. So this is not just a little thing about Greece. It also gets to the heart of what's ailing the Eurozone. Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. It is excessive taxes and excessive regulations. Greece is now showing the way out of the economic morass of Europe. Let us hope Europe takes note and acts. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. <laughs>